We've at last come to Hebrews 13, the final chapter in Hebrews. We'll spend a few weeks here, but uh, we're going to start with the first verse today. And let me read for us the first six, so you can follow along. We'll put it on the screen as well. <clears throat> Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I thought about titling the sermon Sequitur, which is Latin for it follows. Because all the directives in these first few verses that I've just read follow from the remarkable assertion of verses 5 and 6. But our author begins with the directives first and then comes to the truth on which they're based, and we're going to follow his lead. Alternately, I thought about titling this sermon something like, Don't Forget to Remember, because as you'll see, there's uh, more than a little emphasis about remembering and forgetting and being mindful in this text. Uh, I, I suppose I ought to tell you that some scholars don't believe that chapter 13 was a part of the original letter to the Hebrews. Some even argue that chapter 13 was not written by the same author. And they claim that its themes are very different from those of the rest of the letter. They see the transition from chapter 12 to 13 is uncharacteristically abrupt, while most of the thematic transitions throughout this letter are the smoothest in the New Testament. But there are other scholars who believe that chapter 13 was written by the letter's original author at the time of the letter's composition. And I think they're right. The transition between chapters 12 and 13 is not nearly as abrupt as some scholars make it out to be. And it is not at all difficult to find antecedents for the themes in chapter 13 in the earlier parts of this letter. For example, the theme of being mindful and not forgetting, occurs repeatedly in this letter and is especially present in chapters 2 and chapter 6. The angels referred to in verse 2 are of interest to our author earlier in their letter. This is the 13th time they're mentioned in Hebrews. The idea in verse 3 of caring for fellow Christians in prison occurred previously in chapter 10. Chapter 12 has already mentioned the sexually immoral this chapter uses the very same word. The allusion to Abraham's experience in verse 2. He's been mentioned by names over a dozen times already in the letter. And the use of the scripture quotation in verses 5 and verse 6, two quotations actually, totally consistent with this author's style throughout the letter. Like many and maybe even most New Testament letters, this one closes with a list of instructions that are meant to help readers apply the truths they've already seen to their everyday lives. Our author uses chapter 13 to describe what the Christian life, the better life, looks like lived in the real world. 
But it was not then and is not now descriptive of the larger culture in which we live. If you follow the instructions that we've just read and the ones that will come next week and the week after that, you will be living a countercultural life. You'll go against the grain. You'll be paddling upstream. And that takes courage and strength. Following Christ is not for cowards. If you're committed to the status quo, you will find following Jesus very difficult. If you live out these directions in your own life, you will stand out from the people around you like a light in a dark place. Children of God, this is Philippians 2.15, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. If we live just like everyone else around us, we do the same things, we want the same things, we say the same things, how will we ever be the light of the world that Christ calls us to be? But that's just what God intends for you and me. In fact, his plan depends on it. Our lives must be different from the lives of the people around us. And our author lays out what some of those differences will look like. The first one is, verse 1, Keep on loving each other as brothers. Now, we're going to consider what that means in just a moment. But before we do, let me point out a transitional bridge between this verse and the last chapter, since I just mentioned that some students of the Bible don't think there are any. In Greek, this verse reads, Let brotherly love, that's one word, it's a noun, not a verb, like the NIV shows it. Let brotherly love remain or continue. You remember how the author ended the last chapter? He said, God is going to shake the earth and the heaven that has created things so that only what cannot be shaken will remain. Same word we have in verse 1. One of those things that cannot be shaken and will remain is brotherly love. Let brotherly love remain. Outside Christian literature of the period, before and after, actually, brotherly love always referred to the commitment and affection that blood relatives have for each other. But in the Bible, it never refers to that. It always refers to the commitment and affection that Christ followers have for each other. Now, of course, we are blood relatives, too. Not by the blood that courses through our veins, but by the blood that poured from our masters. His blood makes all of us, all who trust in him, family. In referring to Christ's followers as brothers, the author of Hebrews is following almost every other New Testament writer. But unlike any other New Testament writer, he refers to Jesus as our brother. By the mercy of God and the grace of Christ, we are not only brothers and sisters to each other, but Jesus is brother to us all. We are the family of God. Gary and Randy were a couple guys who worked for a furniture company delivering furniture in Maine. And people often, when they went on calls, would say they looked alike, and they would just laugh at that and make jokes. And then one day, the state of Maine passed a law that made it easier for adopted children to see their birth certificates. Randy, who knew that he was adopted, learned that both his birth parents had died, but that they had had another son, who was born on June 10, 1974. One day, they were on a delivery run, and a customer once again comments on how much Gary and Randy look alike. So when they were back in the truck, Randy began nonchalantly to ask Gary some personal questions, like, 
what day he was born and where he grew up. Gary said, I was born on June 10th. And just like that, Randy knew that the guy that he had been working with all this time was his brother. They'd grown up in neighboring towns, attended rival schools, only a year apart in age, and had never known about each other. After their story appeared in the local paper, a teary-eyed woman showed up at the furniture store with a birth certificate. She was their half-sister, born to the same mother five and six years earlier, respectively. She told a reporter, after all these years, I finally found my brothers. That's the way it is in the church. We're really brothers and sisters. And we bear a family resemblance, which actually grows as we grow closer to Jesus. Look at the people sitting around you this morning. You found your family. So the first directive is to keep on loving each other as brothers, to treat people who are not blood relatives like family. That's countercultural. When we do that, for example, when we put a roof on a sister's house, we shine like a light in the cold darkness that has descended on our society in recent decades. Again, a literal translation, let brotherly love remain. The next directive is even more countercultural. Do not forget to entertain strangers. The word translated entertain strangers is once again a noun, not a verb. The noun elsewhere is rendered as hospitality, but it breaks down into its roots as stranger love. Verse 1 speaks of brother love. Verse 2 speaks of stranger love. On the one hand, we're to let brotherly love remain. On the other hand, we're not to forget stranger love. If brotherly love is countercultural, stranger love is even more so. When this letter was written, let me give you a little background. It was common for evangelists and teachers to show up in a town with no money and no place to stay. They were strangers to the people there, but the believers would take them in, offer them a place to sleep and a meal to eat, and then after they'd done some teaching, some, some preaching, they would send them on their way. Without that stranger love, the news about Jesus would never have spread as rapidly as it did around the empire, which is one reason you see over and over again, read Third John for the best example, uh, an emphasis on showing hospitality, showing stranger love. When our author writes about entertaining strangers, don't think he's talking about holding dinner parties with four-course meals and linen napkins. He wants these Christians to make strangers feel welcome. That can be scary. I have a friend who was traveling around the country in the early 70s with his girlfriend. He had no interest in Christianity, although he went to church as a child, and so did she. But... Um, he was interested in spirituality and in drugs. Heroin, cocaine, LSD, you name it. He and his girlfriend had tried it, all of it. They went to Arizona to try peyote. He told me he wanted to try peyote with the Hopi Indians. So he went out to Arizona. And when they wore out their welcome there, like they wore out their welcome everywhere they went, they headed for New York City, hitchhiking their way, not a dollar to call their own. In New York, an older woman took pity on them, and invited these bedraggled, bedeviled, hippie kids into her small home 
and fed them. When they asked her why she did that, she told them it was because of what Jesus had done for her. Dave and Lisa thought they knew about Jesus from their childhood. But this woman revealed that Jesus to them, they didn't know at all. One who loved strangers, who took risks. David, who had been strung out for so long, he couldn't remember what sobriety was like, was deeply touched by this old woman's words. And before he left there, he asked God to forgive him and told him he wanted Jesus to come into his life. That was the last time he ever used. And without withdrawal, he told me later on, no, no withdrawals. Last time he ever used, he got sober. He got married to Lisa, went to Bible college, entered the ministry, and served as a pastor because a lady he didn't know showed him stranger love. Now, don't think it didn't take courage and faith for that old woman to do that, to invite these people, who knows what kind of people they might be, into her home. And that same courage and faith will be required of us if we're going to live as children of light and show this kind of love to other people. Tim Wutton is is a novelist in Australia, and he's well known for being a Christ follower. He came to faith when his dad, who was a policeman, was badly injured in a motorcycle accident, very badly injured. A Christian from the neighborhood, someone he didn't know at all, showed up at the door. This is after weeks in hospital and finally back home and now totally invalided. He showed up at the door and said, my name's Len. I wanted to do this in an Australian accent, but I realized you guys wouldn't hear anything else I said for the rest of the time if I did my horrible Australian accent. But if you want to hear it afterwards, come up to me. You know, <laughs> He came up to the door and he said, my name's Len. I heard your hubby's a bit ill. Anything I can do. That was it. Len kept showing up. He would come back every couple days, and he would pick that man up and carry him. This is in the 1960s. Carry him to the bath and wash him up and dress him again and carry him back to his bed. The family couldn't understand why he would do this. He showed stranger love to that family, and in doing so, a door was opened that they didn't even know existed, and it led them straight to Jesus. Now, if brotherly love or stranger love is to become our lifestyle, we must, like the Apostle Paul, stop regarding the people we meet from a worldly point of view and see them as people God knows and loves and wants for his own. That's what that woman did for my friend David. That's what that man did for Tim. It's what you and I can do for someone. But it takes courage. Verse 2 tells us what we must not forget. Verse 3 tells us what or who, to be more precise, we must remember. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now understand, the people he's referring to in prison are there because they refused to compromise their commitment to Christ. Christians living in North Korea, the worst place in the world for a Christian to live today, in North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Iran, 
Maldives, Bhutan, Yemen, Afghanistan, Laos, Uzbekistan, China are suffering the very same things today that the people mentioned in verse 3 suffered. This is not just something from 2,000 years ago. It's happening now around the world. Their pain calls for two responses from us. Mindfulness, that's what that word remember means literally. Mindfulness, we must keep them in mind and in prayer. These people that are hidden from our sight. And imagination. We must put ourselves in their place. In two weeks we'll have a special time of prayer here on Sunday morning. For the persecuted church. I hope you will be here. And we'll use that opportunity to remember those in prison as though you were their fellow prisoner. And those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. When imagination and love are mixed in the presence of the Spirit of God, people begin to glow like a light in the darkness. Now, all of these directives are countercultural. Loving people who are not blood relatives is uncommon. Loving strangers as though they were friends is rare. And putting yourself into the place of those who are hated and oppressed is almost unheard of. And by the way, the early church took this very literally. They would bribe prison guards so that they could spend the night in a fellow believer's cell, pray with him, and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. They made themselves, one night at a time, fellow prisoners. Now look at verse 4. The directive here also runs counter to our culture. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. There's some question about how to translate that first phrase. If the gender of the word all is neuter, and you can't tell, and the, the neuter and the masculine would be the same here. If the gender of that word all is neuter, it means marriage should be honored in all situations, or at all times. If it's masculine, it could be translated as the NIV has it, or it could be rendered, marriage should be honored by all men. Men, then and now, are often guilty of undervaluing marriage. The word translated honored in this verse comes from a root meaning to to set a price on or to place a value on. Our author wants Christ's people to place enormous value on their marriages. It's become the norm in our society for people to place a higher value on their careers than on their marriages. Couples are placing a higher value on the acquisition of possessions than they are on their relationships. People, and this is a big one, in our culture are valuing their feelings more than their marriages, but Christ's people can be different. They can place a high value on marriage. They can invest time and energy and money into their marriages from day one. Imagine what the world would think of Christianity if Christians divorce-proofed their marriages, if Christians were deeply interested in their relationships with their spouses, if we were all crazy in love with our spouses, would shine like a light in a dark place. The most important way to honor your marriage is to protect it from adultery and sexual immorality. I read something shocking this week to me. Through a number of polls taken, someone has accumulated the data and processed it. And he says that almost one out of three pastors in America 
has been sexually unfaithful to his or her spouse. Adultery in this verse, the word refers to sexual intercourse with someone else's marriage partner. Sexual immorality is a broader term and refers to sexual desires that are misplaced, inordinately emphasized, or wrongly pursued. The person who's entangled in porn, for example, would be described by this term, as would the person who frequently uses sexual innuendo. We shouldn't be doing that, folks. Or is a habitual flirt. That's not the way to shine like a light in a dark place. In our culture, sexual activity outside of marriage has become the norm. Living together before marriage is the status quo. If you want to be light in a dark place, it's time to do relationships differently. Philip Griffin says, if you're sleeping with the person you're dating, you're telling each other, and I would just add, you're telling all the people who know you, two things. First, you're telling each other that your relationship with God is not your primary commitment. Second, you're telling each other that you're the kind of person who will sleep with someone you're not married to. You'll enter into marriage already telling each other that you'll sleep with someone you're not married to. What happens when he goes on business trips or she goes on business trips and things come up? You already know that each of you is not first and foremost committed to God. People who are the light of the world can and must follow a different path. Now, verse 4 instructs us to keep the marriage bed pure or literally undefiled. It's a word that is repeatedly used of keeping a sacred space clean. The marriage of two Christians is sacred. When we get married, we, just the two of us and no one else, build a sanctuary for Christ to enter and reveal himself. But adultery and sexual immorality defile the sanctuary. And the glory of the presence departs. Sexual purity, abstinence outside marriage, chastity within, stands out in our culture. It is not the norm. Watch TV for one evening. Just one evening. And you'll know this is not the norm in our culture. Sexual purity stands out. Don't be afraid to stand out. Stand out like stars in a dark sky. People used to navigate by the stars. They still do. Stand out like a star and let people navigate by your life. Now, in New Testament teaching, it's a very interesting thing. Greed for sexual satisfaction and greed for money are often found side by side. And I think that's because they're symptoms of the same disease, of selfishness. It's funny how the person greedy for money can look down on the person greedy for sex when they share the same disease. So our author goes right on from talking about sex, keep the marriage bed pure, to talking about greed, keep your lives free from the love of money. Now talk about countercultural. Talk about shining like a light in a dark place. Our culture lives not only to make money, but to love it. The word translated free from the love of money, and it is just a single word in the original language, means 
not money loving. So you realize in this passage, it's really interesting to look at this passage in the original language. We have Christ followers who shine like the sun when they're brother loving, stranger loving, and spouse loving, but are as dark as a black hole when they're money loving. Our author says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. The reality is this. The only way, the only way to stay free from the love of money is to be content with what you have. Now, if you're not now content, and we're the least content society in history, if you are not now content, don't despair. Contentment, according to St. Paul, is something that can be learned. You can learn contentment. Educators talk about the importance of the learning environment. By the way, I see teachers all sitting up front. I like that. I got a whole bunch of teachers right up here, the very front. That's cool. Educators talk about a learning environment. Some environments are conducive to learning and some are not. That's also true when it comes to learning contentment. Now listen, the media-driven, advertisement-saturated environment that we all live in makes learning contentment almost impossible. But there is an environment that is conducive to learning contentment. It's an environment in which relationships are more important than things, the needs of others are kept in view, and sexual desire is submitted to the rule of Christ. In other words, do you get it? An environment where brotherly love, excuse me, where brotherly love continues. Stranger love is expressed. The persecuted are remembered and marriage relationship is valued. In that environment, you can learn contentment. Contentment will always elude you when you're pursuing it. If you think, if I just get this, I'll be content, you will never get contentment. But when you pursue love of friends, love of strangers, love of spouses, and care for the oppressed, contentment will find you. When I started this message off, I told you I thought about titling it Sequitur. It follows. Because all of these very countercultural, light in darkness directives flow out of and are dependent on the truths that come next in verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because, and here it is, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Where does the courage come from to love church members like family, knowing that love makes a person vulnerable? Where does the courage come from to love strangers who might take advantage of you, might hurt you? Where does the power come to love the persecuted? Where does the steadfastness come to love your spouse when marriage gets tough in an easier, even more desirable way opens up? You can find the courage, power, and steadfastness in the certainty that God is with you every time you take the risk. And it is a risk to love brothers, love strangers, love spouses, and put their needs before your own. You can't do it alone. You don't have the resources. But you don't have to do it alone because he has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. How do I know he won't leave me hanging? 
when I'm out there giving myself away, using myself up, loving brothers and strangers and prisoners and putting my spouse before myself? How do I know he won't leave me hanging? I can know it because Jesus Christ, remember verse 8, is the same yesterday, today, forever. Look, the one who was himself hanged will not leave you hanging. You can be sure that he will come through for you with power and love and steadfastness as you rely on him. He'll do it. You can take the risk. You can do the dangerous thing. Just try it and see. I dare you. So what is God's Spirit saying to you today? Is he calling you to make a big investment in your marriage? Spend time and energy and money? Perhaps by going to a marriage retreat or reading a book together on marriage or seeing a counselor? Perhaps he's spoken to you about stranger love. He's putting into your mind ways to make people feel welcome here at church or in your neighborhood. People you don't know yet. Perhaps he's spoken to you about brotherly love, about spending time with a Christian brother or sister, putting on a roof, or taking care of a forgiveness issue that's come up. Perhaps he's telling you to invite someone, brother or stranger, to go out and eat with you after the service. What is he saying to you? I don't know, but I know this. It'll take courage to answer him. Find that courage right here. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So that we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Whenever God speaks to us at church, when we leave, we'll go out one of two doors, metaphorically speaking. I know there are three doors out there, but metaphorically speaking, we'll go out one of two doors. The one door, I've been pastoring for a long time. I understand this. The one door is marked forget. We go out that door, and everything we've just heard washes away. We go back to life as usual. We've done our duty. We've gone to church. We've listened to the sermon. That's the way of darkness, not of light. Of emptiness, not of contentment. People go out that door marked forget every week. But don't you go out that way. Don't go out that way today. Go out the door marked remember. But don't go far before you act on what you've heard. Do what God is telling you. And your life will shine. It will shine like a light in darkness. Try it. Let's pray. God, some of this stuff is tough and scary for us. Loving strangers. And some of us have been strung out on desire for so long we don't know what contentment is. I pray that you'll enter in to our lives, cause your word to enter in our thoughts and our minds. Free us and make us to be lights shining in darkness. 
We ask for your help now through Jesus, our Master and Savior. Amen.